Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to consider a couple of parables here this morning. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, Before we do that this morning, though, I want to commend to you an opportunity um, that that I hope that you'll take advantage of. This is my prayer that that you will, in fact, take advantage of this fall. I know that 2020 has been a year of change. I know that it's been a year of ebbing and flowing. Uh, and the extremes seem to be happening, maybe even more of an extreme sense right now uh, in in our in our world. Uh, but since since March, uh, God has really impressed upon me, and the elders discussed this at our last meeting. Really impressed on all of us uh, the importance of gathering together to worship God uh, as the people of God. And now there's a handful of things, and I'm going to drive you towards a, a, actually an application point here, but. But the, uh, the gathering together to worship God uh, is so fundamental. It's so fundamental for us as, as Christians. Uh, and, and we need to be doing that in this time, despite what's going on in the world, probably more and not less. Um, summer months are hard. I get it. Summer months are hard for the gathering of the people of God. Our culture is one that, uh, that, uh, that, that says that, going and doing what you, and we get it, we get like 10 minutes of summer here in, in North Dakota, and that, that's, that's fine, and so I understand it, but attendance is up and down, people are in and out. Friends, I long to be with you. I'm just going to be honest, I long to be with you in this space in particular, because I think that God has designed us for it. I long to be with God's people, to work uh, with you, uh, to move towards maturity, uh, to, I long to be with you, to be emboldened by the Word of God, stepping into, stepping into times and, and places throughout the course of our week where we share the gospel without reservation. Um, and, and yet, I, I do understand that, that there are things that happen in our lives that pull us away, but I, I, would, I would love if we took less time thinking about how we can negotiate away the gathering of God's people um, and more time thinking about how we can gather more regularly with God's people. Um, now, now, if you think back to March, I mean, obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, we had this six to seven week hiatus that we took, and we spent six to seven weeks apart. And that flowed into midway, May, mid-May, which is summer. It's summer here. And so really now today is Labor Day, or this tomorrow's Labor Day, and this is Labor Day weekend. And so this is the unofficial end of summer, so, so to speak. Um, people are pulling in the docks and, and things like that. Um, but I want to suggest to you this morning that for some of you, it's going to be a challenge to get back into the rhythm. It's going to be a challenge to get back in the rhythm to be together with the people of God regularly, because not just the summer months did we have, but we also had six to seven weeks leading into the summer months where we weren't gathering together as, as the, people, the people of God. Get it? Challenges right now. Um, if you have young kids, um, obviously we're unable to provide as much by way of childcare right now. Um, and, and if you're in a high-risk demographic, I get it. But being together as God's people always has come at a cost for his people. And I want to be honest, the cost for us as 21st century Americans is pretty low. It's been pretty low for quite some time. Um, we hop in the vehicle, drive a few minutes, walk into a temperature-controlled building with indoor plumbing, that has been cleaned thoroughly. No one is trying to hunt us down. No one's trying to kill us. Those are all costs that the church has, in fact, maybe not had or 
uh, been a real risk going into gathering with the people of God uh, together in the past throughout the history of the church, which is why I'm grateful that we sang hymns this morning, because what hymns do is they show us that we're fixed within a historical context. We don't just understand it. Uh, we, sometimes as modern people, we think to ourselves, we got it figured out better than people in the previous generations did, and we don't. We don't. Because we don't count the cost nearly as well as many people in, in the past. And the biggest problem that some of us may have faced this morning is that we're a bit tired from a busy week at work because we overdid it, or the kids cried a bit on the way out the door, and we're not quite sure what to wear. Um, but I'm asking you to consider now, it's Labor Day weekend, I'm asking you to consider prioritizing congregational worship on Sundays. Because sure, COVID times, you're gonna, people are going to quarantine, I get it, because your kids are going to school and they're going to get the letter in the mail and you're going to have to stay home, I get it, that's fine, I, I understand that. Um, but we need to consider our neighbors, we need to love them well, and part of them loving them well is if we are well, is to encourage others by gathering together with them. In the, in the context of the local church. We're not just here talking to you about your physical health. We're here talking to you about your spiritual health as well. And this is a vital component. And so, like I said a moment ago, I'm deeply convinced that we need to be gathering more often, even in the season, than last. And the first reason I think this is true is because we are designed to worship. This is the primary function for which God created us as human beings. God created us as people designed to worship. And when I say worship, I don't just mean attend congregational worship, but I mean bringing glory and honor to God in all that we do and all that we say and all that we are uh, and in every area of our lives. Worshiping together as the people of God in congregational worship operates as a mile marker for us throughout the week. And what I mean is that it gives you the tools to worship throughout your week. It gives you the tools to ask the right questions of yourself throughout the week, reflecting on God through giving him praise, honoring him, making disciples of Jesus Christ. Because we have the tendency to drift out of that, right? We have the tendency to drift out of gathering, and we have the tendency to drift away from understanding more deeply what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what the applications of that are in our day-to-day. And, and so I'm suggesting to you, and not even suggesting, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to be compelled by the reality that Scripture is clear, that we are created first and foremost for worship. Coming to this place with other people of God around you and genuinely asking God where you are out of alignment. What things have become more important to you than God, his son Jesus Christ, and the gospel? What lies have you believed this week about God and yourself? Maybe it's that God doesn't care about your situation. Maybe it's that God doesn't care about what you're going through. Or maybe you've slipped into the belief that God is far off. Or maybe you've begun to feel like God doesn't love you. And so we ask ourselves, what are the the things that we've devoted the majority of our time to this year? This week, God regularly uses the gathering of God's people to help remind us the true answers to those questions. And what God will give you the grace to regroup, realign, and reorder your thoughts and actions and speech. And so, again, we're designed to worship. That's what God created us to do. 
and we will choose to worship something. So friends, I'm asking you that we would choose together, not just individually, but corporately, that we would choose together to worship God. We may set aside 9 a.m. or 10.30 as an hour to worship, but the rest of our day on Sundays has very little to do with the worship of God. And so, again, historically, this is kind of the second reason. We're created to worship, but also, historically, Christians have referred to Sunday as the Lord's Day, as really as the first century. We refer to it as the Lord's Day. 21st century mainstream Christianity has reduced it to the Lord's hour, or maybe 15 minutes, where, and you check out for the rest of the 45, right? Because this doesn't apply to me. We come in, we pay our dues to, in church to make sure we are right with the divine entity who's mostly fabricated by our imagination anyways. And while checking our fantasy football lineups or thinking about what we're going to feed the kids for lunch. And so Buffalo City Church, we want to hop out of the trend of the mainstream because I don't think that stream is trending towards the worship of God. It's trending towards the worship of self. Reducing time spent together with God and the people of God is actually just worshiping ourselves. You say, I've got a lot to do. Sure, we all do. I get it. I've had a long week, you say. It's hard for me to get the kids out of the house. It's, that's the self. All of those things begin with I and are centered around me. That's a self-focused approach, not a God-focused one. So what I'm actually driving at is this. <clears throat> this fall, we're going to introduce as, as a church something new. Lord willing, I get it. The world's weird right now. But we want to introduce a, a Sunday evening service. So beginning next Sunday, September 13, I want to invite you to, uh, to join us again in the evening at 6 p.m. Uh, that's going to be different than Sunday morning. But we want another opportunity to regather in the evening for the purpose of worshiping God as the body of Christ, bookending our day on the Lord's Day. Not just, not just saying, yeah, I want to be here for an hour on Sunday morning and then leaving. And for the reasons that I just stated. So we'll start, like I said, Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. We'll sing some songs, we'll read some scripture. Um, we'll, there'll be some practical teaching based on biblical topics, sort of more in a systematic fashion. And some weeks we will use that time for just directed prayer as a congregation, just to be praying together more regularly as, as a church. And so if you're on the weekly email list, you should have received an email on Friday. And if you want to understand better the rationale for, for why we're doing this, or if none of this is what I've just said made any sense to you, that's fine. Go there, read through that email. Um, think about it more deeply. And, and again, I, this is different. It's not the same as Sunday morning. And so if you're thinking to yourself, cool, I don't have to get up on Sunday morning now, don't, don't think that. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we want more time, not less, to worship God together. Uh, this is designed to be a supplement to Sunday morning. Not, it's like the vitamin that you take, not necessarily the, the meal that you should be eating. The service will be uh, not the same. Don't skip Sunday morning in favor of Sunday evening. If it works out once in a while where you can make it to Sunday evening and not Sunday morning, nobody's going to stand at the door and slap your hand for that. 
But, but the reality is we want it to be two, two opportunities for you. And if you decide to forsake Sunday morning, then Sunday, first Sunday evening, then we're missing the point and we'll have to reevaluate. So I'm asking you to seriously consider this. Some of you are going to be like, nah, not doing it. Another thing on the calendar, not for me. But I'm asking you to please consider, would you just pray with me? And at the very least, would you pray and consider that, that God is worthy of our worship together as people? That God is the one who created everyone and everything, and he created you and he created me. And there is no greater call that we have on our lives than to worship God throughout our week. I want you to take seriously spiritual health in addition to physical health. Congregational worship is a vital component of that. So there you go. There's my pitch. I want to give that to you. I want you to hear that, and I want you to know that our heart is to, to worship God together with you as often as we possibly can. And I hope that building this into the DNA of Buffalo City Church will be a, will be a, a great benefit and a great encouragement to us as, as a congregation. Okay, let's, let's go to our text. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. This week we're going to consider these two short parables here. This will be our last week looking at parables. Next week we're actually going to move into the Gospel of John, which I'm really excited about. Uh, there are several books that I'm excited to preach through in the New Testament, of which I haven't felt yet the Lord move me to. And, and now is the time we're going to go to the Gospel of John the other two being Romans and Hebrews. These are big books with big ideas and big concepts, and I want this to take a, a lot of time in the book of John and spend uh, a lot of time considering what God has said to us through his Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John. But for this morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke, the, the book right before John, and we're going to consider the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost, the lost coin. Verses 1 through 10 here. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This morning I just want to consider four simple truths that we find in this in this text. Uh, and as we've considered each parable each week over the course of the summer, uh, it's always wise to see who Jesus is speaking to. 
And so verse 1 and 2 give us this setup into this parable. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And then we're also introduced to scribes and Pharisees who aren't having it. They don't want, they don't want it. They're, they're not interested. They don't like that the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now again, sitting down to eat with someone is an expression of intimacy. And so Jesus was having, a, having an intimate relationship with people who on the outside appeared to be sort of the dregs of society. They violated the law, the tax collectors and sinners did, and were looked down heavily by Pharisees and scribes. Now, again, when we see the word Pharisee, we need to get out of our mind that, that this is someone who is a jerk. I mean, they kind of act like jerks here, but, but when we think about the, the, the Pharisees in, uh, in this time period, we call people Pharisees because we think they're hypocrites. But that's not at all what what the word Pharisee for the first century reader would, would conjure. It would conjure someone who was righteous, who did good things and was, was well thought of in, in society. And the tax collectors and sinners were the, the opposite. They were on the other end of the spectrum. But you'll see that the Pharisees grumbled. They, the scribes, they grumbled. And Jesus then does what he does in so many similar situations that we've seen so far over the summer. He just tells a couple of parables. The parable is phrased as a hypothetical, which it always is. But he puts the hearers, especially here the, the scribes and the Pharisees, in the position of the man he introduces us to in verse 4. He says, What man of you if you were in this position, what would you do? And what he's driving at is, this is the position that Jesus is in. So consider me with the uh, consider with me the, a few truths here that we see here in the following. When Jesus gets to the parable in verse four, he says, "What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine? And go in the open in, in, in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And so the first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus puts the scribes and Pharisees in this position and said, You would operate no differently than I'm operating right now, and you would go to that sheep in its wandering. So the point here is that Jesus comes to us in our wandering. A man with a hundred sheep. The answer is obvious. He will go after the one that wanders off. Now, shepherds knew that there were lots of things that could kill their sheep. If one wandered off, it would become susceptible to predators or to lack of substantial food and water. It would move to a place where the grass was not, was not substantive or where there was no fresh water. Even a lot of plants in the Middle East would prove to be poisonous for sheep. And so the sheep is going to jump the fence. The sheep needs to be brought back into the safety of the herd. And this is designed to show us 
who we are. Jesus says this to show us who we are. We are the wanderers and we are the sheep. And Jesus is the good shepherd. When we chase things that that are not designed for us, they prove hazardous, poisonous, or result in spiritual starvation. This happens all the time in our world. Cultural messages that promote self-interest, temporary fixes, uh, temporary focuses instead of eternal ones. We find ourselves isolated, fearful, and anxious. But the point Jesus is making is that he comes to us in our wandering. The second thing that Jesus says is he doesn't lose any of those who belong to him. And this is a great assurance for Christians. There, there's a man by the name of Philip Keller who was a, a shepherd in Eastern Africa in the 20th century. A, a setting very similar to the one that Jesus would be talking about here. And he wrote a meditation on the 23rd Psalm. And in the book, this meditation, he recounts that it was frequent reality to have his sheep killed in the middle of the night by a predator that the shepherd himself would would never see. It would seem like Keller was a good shepherd from the book. He knew his sheep well and he cared for them with diligence. But Jesus is the good shepherd, not just a good shepherd. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so no predator, no wandering, no poison will ever result in the loss of even one of Jesus' sheep. Even the best shepherds in our world can't claim that. They can't claim full protection. They can't claim full security. They can't claim that there will be no losses, but Jesus does. And so you need not worry. If you belong to Jesus, he will bring you back to the fold in your wandering. The 99 will always become 100. And in the parable of the lost coin, the nine will always again become ten. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's batting a thousand. There's nothing to fear. He brings all of his home. The third thing that we find, and probably the most shocking thing, is that Jesus rejoices and finds great joy in the restoration of his own. Don't be quick to think that Jesus is all about the numbers here. He gives us the numbers, 99 and 100, right? One goes off, there are 99, 100, and we think Jesus is just about the data. He's not just about the the data, because he cares cares deeply about the eternal well-being of every single one who belongs to him. And so, he rejoices when a wanderer comes home. 
This isn't a duty or obligation. He's not just fulfilling a task or accomplishing something or a, on a to-do list or a checking off a box. Jesus Christ loves those that the Father gives him so much that he lays down his life freely. In order to get the one back and bring it back into the 99, he lays his life down freely for that one. And he does so, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. I think sometimes as Christians, we sort of think Jesus is this robotic thing that just shows up and does the necessary, pays the price. Right? When I go to Walmart and I pay the price for the bananas, there's no joy in that. It's just to swipe the card, tap the thing, put the dollar in the self-checkout deal. It's robotic. It's not... I don't find joy in that. And yet, this is Jesus restoring his own and finding great joy and having much rejoicing over the restoration of those who the Father has given to him. Jesus Christ loves those that the Father gives him so much, again, that he lays his life down freely. He loves those that the Father gives him so much that he endures great cost to himself to receive them back into the fold. He loves those that the Father gives him so much that when his sheep are restored, he is overcome with joy and goes to others and says, Rejoice with me as well. You, we, we need to see this picture. We need to latch onto this picture this week. He's not just walking around brooding and frustrated that this sheep has wandered off. He's not stomping through the mud in the pouring rain saying, when, when I find that so-and-so, I'm going to do such and such. He's graciously seeking, knowing full well that he won't lose you. He's not going to lose you. All of the Father all that the Father has given to him will be restored. And he knows that once restored, great joy will be the result. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. So, in the last few months, I've really gotten into coffee as a hobby. I really like coffee. That may seem like a silly thing, but it's delicious. Uh, so this week, I, I ordered a really nice gooseneck kettle. Rebecca took my stovetop kettle and set it on a hot burner, and it melted a bunch of the plastic. And, and I said, well, I could go buy this $20 one, or I could get this much nicer one. And she said, okay, go for it. It has like this temperature hold. It's, it pours really nice. It's amazing. But the mailman, on the day that it was supposed to come, according to USPS, decided that I wasn't home, even though I was home and the door was wide open. And so John knows, I was texting a few people and I was like, what is happening? I want this kettle and I want it now. And so I walked out the door and I walked around the block. The thing said 15 minutes ago, I was like, the mailman couldn't have gotten far. And I was stomping around the block, trying to find him and texting these guys and saying, I'm so bummed out right now when I got this undeliverable notification because I was waiting by the door. I wanted my package. 
I wanted my kettle. And I, as I was doing this, as I was wandering around looking for it, and I did get it, by the way. I went to the post office, and they were like, yeah, I'll be here at 4.30. And I was like, okay. So it all worked out. But as I was stomping around the block, I thought to myself, this is, the, this is what Jesus doesn't do. <laughs> this is not what Jesus does. He doesn't stomp around and be like, these are the ones who wandered off, and I'm so frustrated that they are just sinners. That's not what he does. He's not grumbling. He's not angry. He's the good shepherd who realizes that there will be great rejoicing when he accomplishes the task that he will not fail in, to bring those who the Father has given to him home. He always does it perfectly. Jesus always wins. And he always wins with great joy. Jesus rejoices with great joy in the restoration of his own. Fourth and finally, we're going to use this as a, a conclusion this morning. Considering especially verses 8 through 10 in the, the, the parable of the lost coin, Jesus gives worth and meaning like nothing else can. I've stated that probably not as directly as it needs to be stated. So try this instead. Nothing else can give you worth and meaning outside of Jesus, period. Our society is always harping on finding meaning and purpose, but it really can't offer that to you. It can't. You don't need to do much more than look around the world in its current state. People are losing their jobs that they're passionate about. The family business has been in the family for decades, gives them worth, and it's vanishing. Big corporations waking up to internal redundancies, and when those redundancies can be eliminated to protect bottom lines, in a failing economy, people lose their jobs. And this is the number one place where we as 21st century Americans put our, put our worth in our work. And it can be crippling for someone who has sought worth and meaning in their work. And so we see it. Depression has skyrocketed. And suicide rates on the climb. But the parable of the woman who lost her coin... What do we learn about the coin, the thing that is sought? It, it has no value apart from the one to whom it belongs. You say, well, sure it does. It, it really doesn't. Have you ever put on a pair of pants you haven't worn in a long time and find $5 in the pocket? Yeah, I think we all have, probably. It was in the bottom of your drawer. What was it worth? What was it worth when it was in that pocket at the bottom of your drawer? What's, what purpose did it have other than just being a piece of paper in a pocket in the pants of the drawer? When Jesus seeks and saves us, like the woman sought for her last coin, we immediately are given worth far greater than we could have ever had apart from him. And don't get me wrong, you can be a valuable employee. You, you have value to your spouse and your children. 
not what I'm saying. With the life cycle of your workplace and the life cycle of your family, things change. They come and go in those places. That means that worth is variable and it can actually end in, in termination. Your kids, if they haven't already, they're going to move out. They'll rely on you less and less. And you'll begin to rely on them more and more. It doesn't mean that they don't love you. It just means that there's a shift in the relationship. Things change. The world changes. And the skill as a young parent, the skill to make a grilled cheese, not worth as much when your kids are 60. All the hugs and kisses that came in such an abundance when they were little growing grow less and less frequent. And so the, the admonition is this, don't find your worth in those things. Don't, don't find your worth. It won't last, even though those are good things. I love my children. I love that they want to cuddle me and spend time with me at the stage that they're in. And even though I'm tempted fully to find my worth and my meaning in being a dad, it would be a mistake. Jesus offers you meaning and purpose and worth because he doesn't change. Your relationship with Jesus doesn't change. He offers this with great joy. He'll always be your good shepherd. His sacrificial death for the forgiveness of your sins isn't subject to the economy. It isn't subject to time. If you're his, if you are so joined with him that all of his benefits come to you and you are treasured by God. Please, please don't miss this though. Apart from Christ, this isn't true of you. Worth and meaning and purpose come through being joined with Christ, not through being a nice person and doing kind things, not through trying to be good and working hard, not through having people say nice things about you. But this is it. What has God said to you if you are in Christ? And that's what these two parables give us, things that we explored. These are what I want you to take away. What has God said to you if you are in Christ? As you go consider these things that we've talked about already, but I'll sum up. Jesus will come to you if you are his. Jesus will never lose you. Jesus rejoices over you with great and unending joy. And Jesus offers you worth and purpose like nothing else can. Believe in the word of the Lord for those who are in Christ. And trust Christ fully for your life and all that it contains.